Okay, a good moed. It's uh, middle of Sukkot, Chalamoid Sukkot, and this Friday night Shabbos and the Saturday night Motzei Shabbos Sunday is Shmini Atzeres and Simchas Torah. So we're not going to be reading the Shabbos portion. Rather, we're going to be reading on Shmini Atzeres on Shabbat. We're going to be reading the special portion for the last day of the Sukkot holiday. And then on Simchat Torah, we're going to take out three Torahs. We're going to read the last portion, finishing the Torah cycle. We're going to immediately start the first reading of Bereshit, of Genesis. And then we're going to read in a third Torah what took place in the Holy Temple on, on the end of the Sukkot holiday. So this class... What we're going to do is we're going to go from the absolutely practical, historical into the mystical and back into the practical. So the question here is going to be, what is Simchat Torah? Literally translated, the joy of the Torah. Now, let's go back a little bit and understand how this holiday is built. So... The verse tells us that on the 15th day of the month of Tishrei, which is five days after the Holy Yom Kippur, we are to have the holiday of Sukkot for seven days. For seven days, we're to have the Sukkah hut, and we are to live in it. In other words, the things that we do specifically at home, um, the eating and then uh, for some people sleeping, we do it in the sukkah. Another thing we're told is that there's a special commandment of the four kinds, which is the lulav, the etrog, and the two type of branches, the myrtle branch and the willow branch. Those are the mitzvot that we have for seven days, and those seven days are called sukkot. Then the Torah says, and on the eighth day, Atzeret, and there's, very, there's, there's three primary definitions to what the word atzeret means, whether it means to stop. In Hebrew, the stop signs say atzor, to stop. Another definition is atzeret from the word gather in, in gathering. But be it as it may, the holiday in itself is a dichotomy because on one hand, we call it eight, which means it comes after seven and connected to seven. And on the other hand, it's a complete holiday in its own. And thus, there's the whole question, in what sense is it connected to the Sukkot holiday? And in what sense is it a holiday for itself? Now, the day after Shmini Atzeret, which means the ninth day, that is called Simchat Torah, the joy of Torah. That is the day where we complete the Torah reading cycles from that we do every Shabbat. We read the 54th portion. And, in the, and, and now I want to give you a little bit of the historical background, what's going on here. So in Israel, the holidays are always one day shorter than in the diaspora. So let's talk about the history of this and how this works out. So... The way we establish a holiday is only once we establish the new moon, which represents the beginning of the Jewish calendar month. 
after that, when the Torah says on the first day, on the seventh day, on the 10th day, on the 15th day, we know what we're talking about because we know when Rosh Chodesh is, the beginning of the new month. Now, how was the new month established? Biblically speaking, it would take two witnesses to come to Jerusalem to the, the uh, Supreme Court, which presided by the Holy Temple, and they would testify that they saw the new moon, and they would be questioned, how did you see it? Which way were the horns pointing to? Was it high? Was it low? To make sure that they really saw it. And then what would happen is the courthouse would pronounce it Rosh Chodesh, the new day of the month, and thus we would know what days all the holidays of that specific month fall out on. Now, how would they let everyone know? They didn't have then Zoom or any type of social media or any type of phone or emails. So what they would do is they had set up on certain mountaintops across Israel. They had people that were waiting there on the 29th day and the 30th day, because it was definitely going to be one of those two days. And then once the courthouse proclaimed it to be Rosh Chodesh, there would be someone by the Temple Mount that would wave a torch with fire. And then the next mountain would see it and they would do it. The next mountain would see it. They would do it. The next mountain would see it. They would do it. And in a matter of minutes, the entire Jewish nation knew that we're in Rosh Chodesh. Now, there were those people who they were against anything that was rabbinical interpretation. They wanted everything to be exactly the way the verse pronounces it. So, for example, when the verse says an eye for an eye, they didn't accept their rabbinical interpretation that we're talking monetary. And therefore, they also were against this entire Rosh Chodesh system which was given over to the sages in the courthouse. So what they would do is, to purposely mess it up, they would stand on the mountaintops and they would, would wave their, their torches on the wrong day to purposely confuse the Jewish people and thus they would never know what day is the right holiday. Once the sages saw this and there was nothing they were able to do to stop it, so they stopped the whole torch system and they said there has to be two direct uh, um, messengers, messengers that would leave out from the courthouse and would keep on traveling for 15 days. And every Jewish community, they would pass, they would let them know what day was Rosh Chodesh. Now, why did they stop on the 15th day? Because the two primary holidays are on the 15th day. Passover is on the 15th day of Nisan, and um, Sukkot is on the 15th day of Tishrei. So once they pass the 15th day, it wouldn't make a difference whether the community would know whether it was Rosh Chodesh this day or that day, because it was too late for the holidays. So what did the people who lived outside of the 15-day traveling radius from Temple Mount do, what they would do is they would keep a two-day holiday. And they would say that if there was a 29-day month, then we're proclaiming this night as the holiday. And then the next night, 
they would say, and if it was a 30-day month and we, weren't, we didn't know about it, so this day is the holiday. So they would do everything for two days. And even though today we already work off a, a calendar that was set by Hillel, the great sage, nevertheless, the rabbi said, keep what your parents did. If you live in an area where they kept two days, keep two days. If you, kept, if you live in an area where they kept one day, keep one day. And thus, in the diaspora, we have two Passover seders. And thus, in the diaspora, we have two days of Shavuot, the celebration of the giving of the Torah. And thus, we have two days of Sukkot. Um, only because the sages said it wouldn't be possible to ask people to fast two days consecutively. So therefore, we don't have a two-day Yom Kippur. And then for a total different reason explained by Maimonides, the New Year's, Rosh Hashanah, even in Jerusalem, you have two days. Now, we understand all that. So let's go back to our holiday. So in Israel, they have the first night Sukkot is a holiday. The second night is already the semi-holiday called Chol HaMoed. Chol means weekday, Moed means holiday, and you had both, a mixture. You're allowed, to re, you're allowed to use electronics, you're allowed to go in a car, but still, you shouldn't do business that doesn't have to be done now and could wait without, without uh, suffering any losses. Now, in outside of Israel, so we have the first two days are a holiday, and then after that, we start the semi-holiday, the intermediate days, which are called Chalamod. Now, what does that do for us, for our conversation and our focus? What it does for us is it puts that day called the eighth day, the Jeshmini Atzeret, it puts it in a very peculiar situation. Because on one hand, if you count from the first night of Sukkot, this is an absolute holiday that you're not allowed to do any work. If you count from the second day of Sukkot, then this day is not the eighth day, which is a new holiday, but it's still the seventh day of Sukkot. So thus, we're in a very peculiar situation of how to handle this day called Shmini Atzeret. So I just want to share with you different customs. Some people have a custom that only Friday night, they would, uh, they would eat the sukkah, they would make kiddush in the sukkah, the next day they would go back into the house, only make the kiddush, the meal in the sukkah. Chabad's custom to cover all angles is that the entire Friday night Shabbat coming up, which is the eighth day of sukkot, we continue to eat in the sukkah, but we don't make a blessing on the mitzvah of sitting and eating in the sukkah. Because you don't want to say a blessing with God's name in vain and because we're in doubt so we cover both our bases we eat in the sukkah until saturday night but we don't make a blessing on the sukkah from friday night thus the second day which is now we're talking about saturday night sunday which is the ninth day of this entire lineup really in its most simplest sense it is that second day custom for people in the diaspora of celebrating what we just called the eighth day. Because we're not sure, now we are sure because of the calendar, 
but because of our ancestors, we're not sure whether the ninth day is the ninth day or it's the eighth day. Thus, we keep the eighth day and the ninth day as a holiday where we don't do work. Either way, on the ninth day, you for sure do not have to eat in the sukkah. Because if it's the eighth day, you don't have sukkah no more. If it's the ninth day, you definitely don't have to worry about anything. Thus, in Israel, they do not have this day called Simchat Torah. They only have the eighth day, and that is the end of the holiday. So simply speaking, this mysterious Simchat Torah that we're going to, you know, explore now, it simply shouldn't be Simchat Torah in its own name. It's actually just that second name custom of that second day custom of the eighth day because our ancestors didn't know if it was the eighth day or the ninth day. That is the simple historical background to this day, which is called Simchat Torah, which starts on Saturday night and goes until Sunday night. The Zohar, the Holy Zohar, the uh, book of Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, composed by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. He did not author it. He authored, I believe, three of them, the Idra Rabbah, the Idra Zutta, and one more. There's actually 10 authors. One of the authors of the 10 books of the Zohar was none other than Moshe Rabbeinu, the book called Raya Mehemna, Moses. But either way, he composed the Zohar, and the Zohar is pretty much the foundation. It's not the first Kabbalistic book. According to some opinions, there's a book called Sefer Yetzirah, which was authored by Abraham, and there's even an earlier book called Sefer Raziel Hamalach, which is a Kabbalistic book, which according to our sages, an angel helped Adam to understand how to do tikkun, correction for eating from the tree of knowledge. But be it as it may, the Sefer Yetzirah and the Sefer Raziel, we always talk about the Zohar as the foundation of what we call Kabbalah, the hidden teachings of the Torah. Now, in the Zohar, it says that the Jewish people, it's not a custom that was handed down. It just says it was, a, it was something that the Jewish people themselves decided to do. And it uses the language that it's in Aramaic. They gathered together and they made a day to celebrate joy of Torah. Simply speaking, the joy of that God gave us the most precious gift, which is the Torah, which is the embodiment of God's wisdom and God's will. And we can connect with God on that deepest level, intimate level from brain to brain, heart to heart, through God giving us this gift called the Torah. Now, practically speaking, the reason why we're doing this on this day of Simchat Torah is simply because the cycle of how we read the Torah portions. So Moses instituted that every, there's a whole, it really developed between Moses started it and Ezra described when the Jews came back from the Babylon um, exile, he really established it in all the details. But simply speaking, every single Shabbat, we gather together and we read a Torah portion. Now, the Talmud tells us that way back in the day, 
there were those who felt you can't do a portion in one shot, so they broke it into a three, three and a half year cycle. But then it says that the one custom that was accepted by all is to finish the entire 54 portions in one annual cycle. Thus, the Shabbat post Simchat Torah, we start the book of Genesis. And we make sure to finish it right before we start again, which is why the last Torah portion, the 54th Torah portion, the blessing and the passing of Moses is never read on Shabbat. It's always read on this Simchat Torah day. Thus, we know the custom is that when you finish a Torah study, an entire book, especially when you're talking about the five books of Moses, you make a celebration, and that is the simcha, the joy of celebrating that God blessed us, that we were able to complete the entire 54 portions. And that's why, even though we're not going to read Genesis until the next Shabbat, but because you never stop at an end, you always immediately restart to show that we're continuing. Thus, we read in the Torah number one, the last Torah portion. In Torah number two, just the first piece of the Genesis, first portion, to show that we're not completing and walking away. We're going straight into it again. And then on Shabbat, the following Shabbat, we'll read the entire Torah, first Torah portion in Genesis, then we'll go to Noah, and so forth and so on. So simply speaking, the reason why we have this joyous holiday of Simcha Torah because it's the day that we complete an entire cycle of Torah portion reading. However, this leads us to a question. There is a bunch of questions that I'm going to share with you. Question number one. Why don't we celebrate Simchat Torah on the holiday of Shavuot when we celebrate and commemorate the day that God gave us the Ten Commandments, and within it hidden the whole 613 commandments, and God gave us the Torah. Why are we doing it now after Sukkot when we should be doing it seemingly? We should start the cycle right, right after Shavuot, and we should finish the cycle on Shavuot. That should be the day. The day that God gave us the Torah is the day where we should rejoice in it, and immediately after that, start reading it. The simple answer is because of the cycle that we set up. But that's the question. Why did we set up the cycle this way? We should have had the cycle of reading the Torah start right after Shavuot, right after we received it, the next Shabbat. We should finish it on Shavuot the next year. And we should have this whole celebration and joy. Question number one. Question number two. Everything needs to be rejoiced in its realm. The joy of a siyum, of completing Torah, in all other situations, when someone finishes the Talmud, when someone finishes whatever book he finishes, and he wants to celebrate with his friends, the way it works is, well, it's a Jewish thing, so you have to eat, that's for sure. But other than the eating, the celebration isn't that much in the dancing as much as it is discussing what was learned. Because if it's a rejoicing about the Torah, and the Torah is intellect, the Torah needs to be studied, 
then why would we not have great teachings, great studies, great speakers on, on Simchat Torah? And amazingly enough, on Simchat Torah, we keep the Torah tied up, we keep it in its mantle, and not the scholars, but every single person, scholar, ignorant, simple, worker, secular, uh, spiritual, everyone comes to dance with the Torah. Seemingly, it shouldn't be dancing with the Torah, it should be studying the Torah. And a guy who doesn't even know how, how to read a single word from the Torah shouldn't be, shouldn't be the one, it should be the scholar, seemingly. Something is very unique here. We're celebrating a book that its entire existence is it should be studied and understood, and we're rejoicing with it, not on that level, but on a level where every guy, every person, is coming to dance with the Torah, not to read the Torah. Especially, there are other customs, in Chabad, you know, the main dancing is at night with Akafot, we do it later in the, the next day too, but, but only... Um, a smaller one. But in Chabad, the custom is at night, we don't read the Torah. Others have a custom that they read some of the Torah at night too. We don't do that. We only dance with the Torah. And if you want to know how we did it in 770 by the Rebbe of saintly memory, the Rebbe would come down, it would start at 1 a.m., the Rebbe would be there for a couple of hours, dancing, 77 akafot, the Rebbe would dance the first one and the seventh one, and then the rest they would honor other people, and the Rebbe would stand there and then clap and make with his hands, telling everyone to, to dance and to sing, and then the Rebbe left, and everyone stayed there until the morning. Literally, the Rebbe came into 770 the next morning to do his prayers, and we were there all night dancing, and you can imagine what the place looked like. It didn't exactly look like, uh, you know, uh, the most organized place. And that was it. And we went straight to the davening, and we went straight to the dancing again, and then we read the Torah. So why? Why shouldn't we celebrate the completion of Torah reading in the same way we would celebrate any other completion of a Torah reading, which is the scholar sitting up front, and sharing of great teachings about the Torah. Okay, so these are the questions that I've set forth. And hopefully, when we really get into what Simcha Torah is, we will truly understand the deeper meaning, which will answer practically why we do it, when we do it, and how we do it. And to start with that, I want to share with you that our sages give two different insights to what does it mean, simchat Torah, the joy of Torah. Do we say that it means that we are rejoicing in having the Torah? Or do we say that we are giving joy to the Torah? Whose joy are we talking about? Are we talking about our joy in the Torah? Or are we talking about the Torah's joy? in our celebrating the Torah. Both of these interpretations are quoted by the sages. And for this, we need to understand what is the deeper concept of the Simcha Torah. What does it mean that we're giving joy to the Torah? So let's back up a moment. And let's talk about why are we doing Simcha Torah now and not in Shavuot time. 
And the simple answer that is explained in the mystical teachings is, and that's the reason why we start the cycle now, is because when Moses came down 40 days after the Ten Commandments, Moses broke the tablets. And the reason why Moses broke the tablets is because the Jews had made the golden calf and served it as an idol. After that, Moses went back up another 40 days and prayed that God forgive the Jewish people and not annihilate them for just 39 pika days after hearing directly from God, I am God, your God, you shall not have any other gods. And they committed this horrific sin. Moses, for 40 days and night, prayed God forgive them. When God forgave them and Moses came back down after the second 40 days, then God beckoned him to come back up for a third 40 days, saying that you broke the tablets I gave you. So now bring up stone and I will engrave in it so that the Jews should have the two tablets. Then 40 days later, Moses comes down with the second set of tablets. Now, if you do your math, the 40, 40, 40, the one day in between each time, you will end up that Moses came down the mountain with the second set of luchot, which represents the ultimate forgiveness on Yom Kippur, on the Holy Day of Atonement. Thus, the reason why we celebrate Simchat Torah now is because it's our earliest opportunity after Yom Kippur. After Yom Kippur, for those five days, we're running around getting a lulav and an etrog and building the sukkah and everything. We're busy. So busy, the law says we don't even have time to sin. Then comes along the seven days of the sukkah. Then comes along the eighth day, which is a holiday. The first opportunity we have is on the ninth day, the day after the holidays are over. And now we can celebrate that which we received on Yom Kippur the Holy Day of Atonement, when God gave us the second tablet, the one that remained intact and whole. Now, there are many, many mystical teachings on what the second tablets had and what the first tablets had. What the first tablets had spiritually that the second tablets didn't have and what the second tablets had spiritually that the first tablets didn't have. And if you read my weekly email that I sent out, you have over there the one aspect of looking at it. Tonight, I want to share with you a different aspect. The power of the second Luchot that it was given on Yom Kippur is that it has the power of Teshuva, repentance. Now, what does that mean? What it means is that the Torah itself is limited in its capacity of atonement. For example, the atonement that we find in the Torah is specifically for sins that were done unintentionally. There's one sacrifice, a carbon asham, and, and the sages talk about it, which is also for an intentional sin, but in general, the notion of teshuva and atonement from the logistics of the Torah laws and boundaries is only for the sins which were done unintentionally. 
but a sin that was done intentionally, the Torah can't help you. The language in, in, in Kabbalah is that once you've cut yourself off from the Torah by an intentional sin, the Torah cannot help you. You have detached yourself from the Torah. How can the Torah help you? Thus, the concept of teshuva is actually comes from a place which is higher than the Torah. It is what we call in Kabbalistic language, the Torah is of the supernal infinite wisdom of God. Teshuva comes from the 13 attributes of mercy, which comes from the supernal crown of God. And the Kabbalah and Hasidus explain it very specifically that the crown is above the brain. The brain is part of the linear light. It has a system, while the crown is the circular, the infinite. And thus Yom Kippur is all about connecting with the infinite, that connection of the essence of my soul with the essence of God the father-son relationship in which God forgives us even when we do a sin intentionally and rebelliously, as long as we can shed that due to Shuvah, which comes from a place within us that we will never walk out on God. Regardless of the tantrums we show, we throw in, 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 in that instinctively in the deepest, deepest level, even when, you know, it's like when a kid tells their father, I hate you, tells the mother, I, I, can't, I hate you. But nevertheless, you know, the kid is a kid, the parent is the parent, and the parent has to swallow it, knowing that the kid is throwing a tantrum. And then it won't be long before the kid comes back and gives a hug, and, and we're, we're moving on. Yom Kippur, you see, the Torah can't digest that. In the Torah, if you committed blasphemy, it's punishable by death, and teshuva is not going to help. But on the deepest level, on the part where the essence of my soul connects to the essence of God, on that level, God knows and I know that even when I, God forbid, committed blasphemy, it was just an external rage. And the inside was already saying, you're crazy. What are you talking to and who are you talking to? Really? This is God. This is your father. You're his son. Now that we understand that, we're going to talk about another two dimensions. There is the intellect of Torah, and there's what we call Keter Torah, the crown of Torah. Now, to understand this, I want to share with you. When you study Torah, you have to make a blessing. And by the way, parenthetically speaking, there's beautiful discussions on whether the blessing on the Torah is like the blessing of food or anything you're enjoying, or it's a blessing of mitzvah. And there's a beautiful insight that says, the first blessing we say, master the universe, right? Blessed are you, God, our God, master the universe, who has commanded us to occupy ourselves with Torah. That is a mitzvah blessing. Before you do a mitzvah, you make a blessing. But the second blessing, that's not a mitzvah blessing. So according to many opinions, it's a, a pleasure blessing. It's a preciousness blessing. It's not about the mitzvah of studying the Torah. 
It's about the fact that God gave us the Torah. Now, to understand how this manifests itself. So we learn out of a verse in Psalms, I think it's 146. We say it three times a day in our prayers. It's called Ashrei. We have over there a verse that says, Karav Hashem lechol karav lechol God is close to those who call him, to those who call him truthfully. And our sages say, what do you mean? Call him? Call him truthfully. And our sages explain, call him, tru- call him is prayer. Call him truthfully is Torah. Now the sages go on to extrapolate that if we're saying that Torah means calling God, that means that every word of Torah is God's name. Seamus. It's the name of God. And with this, you'll now understand a very interesting law. When I call up someone to the Torah to receive a reading of the Torah, the person doesn't know the 22 Hebrew alphabets. He doesn't know how to read Hebrew. He definitely doesn't know how to read Hebrew the way it's written in the Torah without the vowels. And he most certainly doesn't understand a word that's being said. So how can he make a blessing on the Torah? He's not digesting it. The answer is that when we talk about the 24 books, the written Torah, you can make a blessing even if you don't understand it because deeper than the intellect of the Torah is the fact that the Torah is the name of God through which you call him. By the way, not so with the oral law. You can't get away with that with the Talmud. If you know clearly that you don't understand the word you're saying, then don't make a blessing on it. That's the oral law. But when we talk about the written law, the true power of the written law, more than it is a book of intellect and a constitution which governs our life, first and foremost, it is how we call God and God comes to us. Thus, if I don't know the etymology of your name and I don't know the meaning of your name, It doesn't stop me from calling you by your name. And it doesn't stop for me to get absolutely the desired results that when I call your name, you will turn around and your attention will be focused on me. Thus, when we talk about the Torah as the name of God, if someone has no idea what they're saying, but they say the words of Torah, they have called God. God has turned his attention to this person who called him, mission accomplished, and thus you can make a blessing when you get called up to the Torah, even though you don't understand a single word that's about to be read. Which leads us to the deeper concept. Deeper than the Torah is an intellectual book. And the verse says, this is your wisdom and your understanding. More than the, the Torah is an intellectual academic book, what's most important to know is that the Torah is a divine book. It's divinity. And thus, before you study Torah, you have to make a blessing. You don't make a blessing before you study mathematics, even though that's also an intellectual gift from God. As science and any other intellect. But the Torah, before we look at it as an intellectual gift, we look at it as a divine gift. 
And thus the process of studying Torah is not just the intellect of the Torah, but the divinity of the Torah. And this will explain us the peculiar word that God used at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Normally we say when God says I, it's Ani, like we say at the end of Shema. Ani Hashem Elokeichem Emet. I am God, your God, the true God. However, in the Ten Commandments, he doesn't start with Ani, I am God, your God who took you out of Egypt. But rather he starts with the word Anochi. Now our sages want to know why did he use this word here? And they say the secret is hidden in the four letters which create an acronym. Aleph Nun Chaf Yud spells out the words An Ano Nafshik Savit Yehavit. I, my soul, my essence, placed in my writing. Thus, the secret that God's telling us is, yes, this is intellectual. Yes, you have to understand it. Yes, you have to know the laws. Know what yes and what no and what I mean and what I say and what are the boundaries and what are the definitions and what are the characters. Absolutely. But before that, you should know, you should know that I put myself in the Torah. And that's why in yeshivas, before you start learning, you say, Three words in Yiddish. Zogdan Heilige says the Holy Talmud, says the Holy Chumash, says the Holy Mishnayas. Because it's important to understand that our pursuit here is not simply an a intellectual pursuit, a scholarly pursuit, but it's a divinity pursuit to become one with God, to digest God in my brain, in my heart, in my body. And this is also the meaning of a verse which says, and you shall take from me a donation. God told Moses to make a fundraiser to build a holy temple, the tabernacle in the Mishkan in the desert. Now our sages say, look at it more deeper. The word tirumah should be broken into two words. Torah mem. The Torah that was given in 40 days. Now, when Moses was up on the mountain. And now, let's take it to the next level. The yikhuli, it doesn't mean you should take for me, but literally it means take me. And what God is saying is, that in this holy tabernacle that you're going to build, there's going to be a holy of holies. And in that holy of holies is going to be an ark. And in that ark is going to be the tablets, according to some opinions. The Torah, the Torah is on the side of it, in it. But either way, you should know that the purpose of this is, you should take me into your life. And how do you take me into your life? Through Torah mem. Through the Torah that was given in 40 days and 40 nights. Thus, we can say that Shavuot, when God gave us the Torah, we connected with the intellectual obligatory mitzvot that were being taught. However, when we broke that with our sin, and now we had to do teshuvah, the type of teshuvah that the Torah cannot acknowledge, it's in the depths of the relationship between the Jew and God and God and the Jew. At that level, we're no more talking about just the intellect of the Torah. We're talking about the author of the Torah. We're talking about the divinity in the Torah. 
Now we understand why Simchat Torah comes after Yom Kippur and not after Shavuot. Because we're not here to celebrate the intellectual constitutional part of the Torah just. We're here to accept the ultimate, infinite unity that takes place between God and us and us and God through the Torah. And now we understand why the real joy is not in the scholarly dissertations, but in simply holding the Torah tight against your heart and dancing with your eyes closed. Regardless whether I understand what's in here or not, this is who I am. And that joy and dancing is what Simchat Torah is all about. And now we can go back to that two ways of looking at it. Does the Torah give the Jew joy? And that's what Simchat Torah is about. Our joy in having the Torah? Or is it the Torah's joy that it was given to us? And to understand this, we need to understand something very deep in Kabbalah. It actually comes not from a Kabbalah book. It comes from a Medrash. Our sages talk about seven things that were created, existed, not created, existed before the world was created. And two of them is the soul and the Torah. Comes along and the sage and says, he, according to the actual reading over there, when I looked it up, it actually says that someone asked him, you know, I have two loves, the love of my fellow Jew and the love of the Torah. But he wanted to know which one comes first, which one is superior. And the answer he gave him was that there are those that say that the Torah comes before the Jew, and he quotes a verse. However, I say, that's what he says, I say that the Jew comes before, he's superior than the Torah. He existed before, which means higher than the Torah. And he brings a proof over there that, he, that the, God calls the Jew, he calls him the head. Now, why am I sharing this? Because in the depths of depths, the connection that exists between the essence of a soul and God is even deeper than the connection that exists between God and his Torah. Even though they're both primordial, but the connection of the essence of the Jew is even deeper. And that's why even when the Torah gets into a bad situation, I'm sorry, even when the Jew gets into a bad situation with the Torah, he can still go higher, connect to the essence of God, and have Teshuvah. However, there's a little problem here. What's the problem? The problem is that the soul, the way it exists in its primordial state, is superior to the Torah because it's the essence of God, not just the wisdom and will of God. However, the way God sends the soul to descend into this world, it now becomes a creation which is separated in its paradigm from its creator. The example given is that when a father gives birth to a son, so then the son, in one hand, he's the essence of his father, but on the other hand, he's a separate being. The Torah, even the way it came down here, 
it is still in its spiritual dimension. Now understand what happens here. The Jew, this essence of the soul is superior than the Torah. The Torah is the infinite wisdom of God. And as the Zohar says, he and his wisdom is one. The Jew is the essence of God, the essence and soul of God. That's what it's a piece of God. However, down here, the soul cannot connect with its source. And thus, it is the Torah that connects the soul with its original source. I'm going to give you a metaphor that the fifth of Abba gives. He talks about how the power of production lies in the uterus of the woman and in the ground. However, both the uterus of the woman and the ground cannot give forth its power of reproduction until a seed is placed within it. So listen to what, what he says. He says that at Mount Sinai, God married us and we became his wife. Actually, by, by the, uh, the real teaching is that at Mount Sinai was the chuppah, we will be throwed, and on Yom Kippur, Yom Chasunose, Zumat and Toyota goes on Yom Kippur. That's when we really got married to God on Yom Kippur. Now, we're the wife, we have the uterus. And God placed his seed within us to activate and actualize the omnipotence of the uterus. What is the seed of God? His Torah. It came from the, the essence of his intellect and his will. Thus, we understand that when we're down here, we originally are lower than the Torah. The Torah needs to empower us, arouse within us our true essence, omnipotence. Thus, the first stage is that the joy is ours through the Torah. The Torah gives us joy by taking us out of our comatose slumber and be able to connect us to our primordial oneness with God. However, once that happens, once the seed activates the uterus, once the Torah activates the omnipotence of my soul the way it is in the essence of God, primordial, now the soul is higher than the Torah. So it's the soul that gives joy to the Torah by dancing with the Torah. Thus, on Simchat Torah, there are two things that are taking place at night. First, we read three times a set of verses. Atar Reis not from the Torah, from Asidr. And mystically speaking, we read those verses because through that, the seed is absorbed into the uterus. Through that, the divinity of the Torah is absorbed into the bosom of the soul. And the soul has a revelation and an actualization of its omnipotent source where it's a piece of God. And now that that happened, he goes and takes the Torah and dances with the Torah, giving the Torah unprecedented joy. Giving the Torah the joy that you are not just the wisdom of God, but within you is the essence, divinity of God. That the Torah doesn't have until the Jew gives it to the Torah by dancing with the Torah. 
But the Jew can't do that until the Torah gives it the power to wake it up from its comatose that happened by the descent from the bosom of God into this physical world. Now, when we talk about that level, we're talking about a whole different dimension. When we look at the Torah only for its intellect, that it's the infinite intellect of God, so everyone has a different capacity. There's a scholar, the big scholar, the giant scholar, the mini scholar, the simple person, the guy who knows uh, at least to read a Mishnah, whatever it may be. On that level, it's finite. Everyone can dance only in accordance to his intellectual appreciation and understanding of the Torah. But when we're talking about the essence divinity, when we're talking about not opening the Torah and reading it, not giving a scholarly dissertation on it, but we're talking about the divinity essence connection, then what's the difference between Rabbi uh, Zalman, the scholar, and Moshe, the tailor, and Yanko, the, the, the Uber driver. On that level, when it comes to Simchas Torah, and they hold the Torah against their heart, it's an infinite connection. And thus the joy of Simchat Torah is far greater than the joy that could be on Shavuot. It's Yom Kippur bursting forth in the ultimate love and preciousness and joy of being one with God. And that is what Simchas Torah is truly all about. And that's why we do it now, connecting to Yom Kippur. That's why we do it through dancing with it. And that's why the joy makes no difference if it's a scholar or it's a tailor or it's an Uber driver. It's all just simply the joy and love of the unity and oneness that now exists, which God gives to the soul and the soul gives to the Torah. And I am done.